Sukkot, a fleeting world. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave the Am Yisrael the command to leave their homes every year for seven days and move into the Sukkah, he introduced it in a most unusual way. Kol ha'ezrach b'Yisrael yeshvu b'Sukkot. Every ezrach, it means every established citizen in Yisrael must dwell in Sukkot. Vayikra. Now the word Ezrach is a peculiar way of describing those who are commanded to live in the Sukkah. No other mitzvah is described like that. We're not told that an Ezrach should pick up the Dalad Minim or that an Ezrach should wear tefillin or keep Shabbos. It's only here that the Torah chooses to use this unusual word. Every Ezrach should make the Sukkah his home for seven days. Now, if we're going to try to understand why this one mitzvah is depicted in such a manner, we should first make an attempt to discover what it is that we are trying to accomplish when we move into the sukkah. Why is the Ezrach commanded in this mitzvah altogether? And we won't have to search far to find the answer, because when it comes to the mitzvah of sukkah, the Torah tells us the reason straight away. Kola Ezrach b'Yisrael yeshva b'Sukkot. Every Ezrach in Yisrael must dwell in Sukkot in order that your generations will know that I caused the children of Yisrael to dwell in Sukkot when I took them out of Mitzrayim. It's an open Pasuk. We're trying to remind ourselves of the 40 years we spent in tents in the wilderness. Now, isn't it a pity that people only look at the Drushas? They want to hear fanciful explanations, and that's all. They're interested in high-level things, soydas, but to hear something with some meat on it, something that talks to them at their stage in life. No, they think it's too simple for their sophisticated minds. But the truth is that drushes might be very good, but ain mikra yoitze miyede pshuto, and therefore... We should pay attention to the plain meaning of these words. You should dwell in Sukkot in order that you should know that I caused the Bnei Yisrael to dwell in Sukkot. Not to remember that they dwelt in Sukkot, but rather, Hoshafti, that I caused them to dwell in Sukkot. It means I purposefully seated them in Sukkot for 40 years when I took them out of the land of Mitzrayim. Now we think according to what we learned in Chumash when we were little children, that the entire episode of the Dor HaMidbar was nothing but a punishment because of the Miraglim. The spies spoke lush and horror about Eretz Yisrael and the people cried. And therefore, the Am Yisrael was sentenced to wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. And while it is certainly not false to think so, it's absolutely not the whole story. Because even if the nation now had to wait 40 years before coming into Eretz Yisrael, we could have lived at least with some sense of permanence in the wilderness. HaKadosh Baruch Hu could have kept us in one place and we would have built stone homes. For 40 years we could have lived in one place overlooking Eretz Yisrael, seeing the land every day and mourning for our great sin that prevented us from entering the land. That would have been a punishment. So why is it that HaKadosh Baruch Hu made us wander from place to place for all these years living in portable flimsy tents? The answer is that HaKadosh Baruch Hu had a plan that he had foreseen from the beginning. And the plan was that there had to be a Hakdama, a preparation to Eretz Yisrael. 
I'll explain that. Eretz Yisrael was going to be for the Am Yisrael a new kind of existence. An existence of luxury. It was a land flowing with milk and honey and all good things. A land of eating to satiation. And a place where lo sechar kolba, where nothing would be lacking. And most of all, it was a land of batim melem koltov, homes filled with all good things. They were going to move into ready-made houses, resplendent homes made of stone that were filled with all good things. Ubatim tovim tivne. You'll build beautiful homes. When you come into the land, said Hashem, it means that they would try to make their homes even nicer than they found them. That's human nature. Even the poorest person tries to make his home beautiful. And why shouldn't he? That's his place. And so they all got busy building beautiful homes. And then they moved into those nice homes. It was a dream come true after so many years of wandering and living in tents. They would be living the good life in Eretz Yisroel. And Hashem wanted that. He wanted that we should be on the land forever and ever, enjoying His gifts. There's no greater success than serving Hashem. B'sibcha u'betuv le'vav mirov kol. In great happiness because of the abundance of all good things that He provides you. Devarim. The greatest form of avoidus Hashem is when you're living in a nice home and you're enjoying life and you're serving Hashem in the midst of this happiness. Like I always say, to do teshuva while you're eating watermelon or ice cream is the best kind of teshuva. The Chayvah Sulevav says that. And so, when they would enter into Eretz Yisrael, they would be given an opportunity to achieve more than any other situation could afford them. To live in strong and secure homes, filled with all good things, and to become more and more grateful to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in the midst of luxury. They would sing to Hashem all day, to shout in a happiness to Him. That's the highest form of Avoidas Hashem. And yet, at the same time, as great of an opportunity luxury and convenience may be, the Torah tells us that there's a very great peril in living in this kind of existence. Ubatim tovim tivne. You'll build homes. Vyashavta. And then you'll dwell in those nice homes. Vishachachta et Hashem. And you'll forget about Hashem. You'll forget about Hashem? That's impossible. They never forgot Hashem in Eretz Yisrael. But it means you won't think about him as the landlord, as the one who owns this home that you're living in. You'll forget that he is the one who gave it to you. Certainly you'll dive in every day and you'll say Kriyas Shema and you'll mention Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Certainly, but it's possible to do all of these things and still to forget that you're living in somebody else's home, that you're only a visitor passing through this world. Now, the Torah is not against making houses. It's not against beautifying your home either. But it's against forgetting that it's only temporary. Build batim tovim. Yes. Vayashavta. And dwell in them. Yes. But don't fulfill the end of that pasuk. Vishachachta et Hashem. Don't forget that you're only a visitor passing through this world. And that sooner or later... Hopefully later, you'll be going back to Hashem. Some people get nervous when they hear such talk, that we're only visiting temporarily and we'll have to leave. They're not interested in such talk. 
But it's the truth. It's the most important truth that you'll ever know. This world resembles a corridor, a hallway that is leading you into the palace of the next world, of us. We're walking down a hallway. That's all this world is. It's a long hallway and we want it to last as long as possible. But it's only a hallway after all. Now, such to acquire such an attitude is easier said than done. It's not easy to live in strong houses filled with all good things and to remember that it's only temporary. It's not easy to live in a house made of brick that seems like it will last forever and to always remember that it won't. And so as much as Hashem wanted to give the Am Yisrael the great opportunity to serve him with a happy mind because of the abundance of all good things that he provides, he couldn't just suddenly plunge the people into such a test without some preface. To be prefaced for success at living such a lifestyle, you need a big hakdama. And the hakdama was going to be basukot hoshavti et Bene Israel, Bahotsi, Otam Eretz Mitzrayim. For 40 years, the Am Yisrael would live in Sukkot before they could come into Eretz Yisrael and move into the beautiful stone homes that Hashem had prepared for them. They would need to spend 40 years learning Musr. And so, HaKadosh Baruch Hu sat them in tents for 40 years. They didn't only learn Musr. They lived it. For 40 years, they had the opposite of Eretz Yisrael. They didn't have homes filled with all good things. They didn't have any homes at all. They sat under roofs that were made of cloth, maybe branches or planks of wood that couldn't protect them so much. The walls were pretty flimsy too. They certainly weren't walls of brick. Who's going to waste effort building a brick house if the next minute he might have to pack up and move on? That's how they lived. Every day they had to be on the alert. Maybe they'll hear a sound of the trumpets that would summon them to pull up the stakes of their tents and start moving. They never had any kind of security in the Midbar that they would remain in one place for longer than a day. It's true. In some places they remained for many, many days. But every day they were in trepidation. Every minute the trumpet might sound and say, Get moving! You understand what a disturbance that is for normal feeling of security in this world? Let's say you move into a home, but you know that at any moment you might be summoned to leave with you and your family and never come back. You wouldn't do anything. You won't try to make any repairs, nothing. Any minute, you might get a notice to move out. And even if you lived there 50 years, you never had a minute of menucha, of permanence. And that was HaKadosh Baruch Hu's plan from the beginning. The Am Yisrael would spend 40 years of training, preparing for the day when they would finally come into Eretz Yisrael. The 40 years of living in Sukkot were intended as a lesson in what Oylem Hazeh really is. They woke up every morning to see flimsy walls blowing in the wind, and they fell asleep every night looking at flimsy roofs made out of almost nothing. And they were being reminded all the time that this world is a very flimsy world. It was a 40-year experience of understanding that this world is only temporary, that we're only passing through. So now, when they came into the walled cities 
and stone houses of Eretz Yisrael. They were ready, they said. We'll have houses filled with all good things, but we'll be on guard not to deceive ourselves. We're prepared for this test. And they moved into these big, beautiful houses of stone with humility. Ah, they said, Baruch Hashem, it's not ours. You give it to me for 70 years, maybe a 100 years. But after that, I'll be leaving this flimsy world and enter into the real world. But how long would such an attitude last? 10 years? 50 years, maybe? Habit after all, is overpowering, especially if it's practiced for generations. And therefore, such an attitude surely wouldn't last on its own for a hundred years. But a Kaddish Baruch Hu wants it to last for thousands of years. You should be on the land like the heavens are over the land forever. I want it to be forever. And therefore, in order to remind the Am Yisrael not to forget the Musr that they learned in the Midbar, Hashem gave us the mitzvah of Sukkah. Every year on Sukkot, the entire nation moved out of their beautiful homes that they had found when they moved into the land. And they went out into the Sukkah, a flimsy little building, for seven days. They sat there and slept there and ate there and the whole time they were reminding themselves, Ki basukoto shafti et bene Israel. Hashem kept us in huts for 40 years in the wilderness. Ah, this is how Hashem sat us in the Midbar for 40 years. And it was all for the purpose of teaching us that no matter how big our houses are, and no matter how many years will be established on our land, we should never forget the lesson that we are only visitors in this world. And that's the answer to the question we asked in the beginning of the lecture. What does it mean, that every established citizen should sit in the sukkah for seven days? What's this queer word, Ezrach? Now, if you know a little Lashen Kodesh, you'll remember that Ezrach means a burger, a solid citizen. And the Pasuk is telling us, you solid citizens, you important people who feel so secure in your lives, must forsake your homes and move into Sukkot for seven days. The Torah is emphasizing the purpose of the mitzvah here. Even the established Ezrach, who dwells in a palatial residence, must move out of his sturdy home and live in a flimsy sukkah for seven days. Because that's how we all feel. We all know implicitly that this world is our place. And therefore, no matter how big or small of a home you had, no matter how strong and secure your home was, you had to leave that home and walk humbly into your sukkah and say, I will never forget that I'm just a temporary visitor here and I'm not as important as I imagined. That's why one of the fundamental halachas of building is that it must be constructed in such a way that it could be a temporary dwelling. If it's more than 20 amas, it's not kosher because such a height requires sturdy walls and the Torah doesn't want sturdiness. It must be a diris arai, something that is small enough that it could be made with a flimsy construction and remain standing. 
It's not that the Torah is trying to make it easier for you by letting you get by with a less expensive sukkah. It's insisting that the sukkah be a flimsy and temporary structure. And it is into this little flimsy hut that the Ezrach, that all of us who feel so secure in this world, must relocate. Because that's the lesson we're trying to learn. Living in such a dwelling humbles us by means of uprooting us from this world. That's how it is. You can't feel too established in this world if you're living in a booth made of almost nothing. You know, when you live in a brick house with strong walls and a very heavy roof, it's not so easy to remember that you're only a guest passing through this world. The proof is in the pudding. Look around. Who doesn't think that he's here in this world for the next 10,000 years? Everybody imagines so like the man who moved in next door to me years ago. I remember him well, because as we walked to shul on Shabbos morning, he would be outside in his garden, clipping his bushes. So this man decided to put up a metal fence around his yard, an expensive wrought iron fence. And in the middle of the fence was a big metal circle, like a shield. And he put on it his initial, a big letter P of cast iron in the middle. A fence like that could stand for a thousand years. Well, it wasn't too long. One night we heard outside somebody crying out. His son was running out of the house, running down the street, yelling, Oxygen! He ran around the corner to the fire station and brought back a little oxygen tank. But it was too late. His father was finished with this world already. And so the family eventually moved. And now somebody else bought the home. The colored man living there now has a big letter P on the gate in front of his house. It's not his initial, but it's still there in heavy metal. An insert in the gate memorializing the man who thought that he would be around forever. And the truth is we, the Fruma, are not much better. We think that this is our place. That's why people put everything they have into the house. All types of luxuries, of course, expensive rugs that could last forever. We'll be here forever. Of course, if you sit him down and talk to him, you'll see that he knows all about this world being only a hallway before the palace of the next world. He'll tell you that But it's not easy to live with that attitude when the hallway is made of brick. Houses. Even your home is a big test. That's why you have to know that when you move into a nice apartment or a home, you must know that you're in a bigger danger than a man who lives in a broken down rented flat. Because there is always a leak from the ceiling. The bathroom above is dripping down on you. And you have no interest in settling there forever. You don't feel like it's your permanent place in that broken down flat. Every Monday and Thursday, you threaten the landlord to leave. And the truth is, he doesn't care. As soon as you move out, he'll put in three Puerto Rican families instead of you. And he'll make more money. People who live in such places are in much less danger of forgetting that they're visitors in this world. They're constantly reminded that this place is not it. When you live like that, there's nothing to cause you to be too much attached to that place. Other things maybe will make you forget, but not your home. But if you have a nice apartment, or maybe even your own home on a nice quiet street, could be you have a garden too, then you need a special warning. The Torah says, beware, 
because there is a very big chance that you might fall in love with your little estate. You walk out in the morning smoking your pipe and you turn your head viewing your garden and you see your flowers and your shrubs and you see the street is quiet and clean and you feel like it's all yours and that you'll be living here for the next 10,000 years. It means there's a very big danger that you'll forget that you have a landlord. There's nothing to remind you that you're not going to be here for a very long time. And today we're in a bigger sakana than ever before. Because no matter what type of apartment you have, you're living more permanently than our forefathers ever did. There's no question that the comforts and conveniences of this world are a very big danger. They breed a feeling of this world is it. And therefore, if the Amashem is going to succeed at never forgetting the important principle that this world is merely a passing ship in the night... They require special instruction. And if you don't get instruction, or if you don't listen to this instruction, there's a great danger of spending your days in this world thinking that this world is forever, that this is the world that counts. And that's why we have the mitzvah of living in a sukkah today. We move into a temporary dwelling because we're expected to use it as a glorious opportunity once a year to remind ourselves of the flimsy habitations in the wilderness. For seven days, we imitate the Dor Hamidbar, the generation of the wilderness, and we try to learn the same lesson that prepared them for moving into real homes. Of course, it's not only on Sukkot. All year long is also a good time to remind yourself. There's no harm if you walk outside of your home once in a while and think about what we're saying now. You can even try it tonight. Before you walk into your house, stop on the sidewalk and take a look at your home and think, this house is only temporarily mine. Even if I have the deed and I paid off the mortgage already, it doesn't matter. I'm only a temporary resident in this world. And while that's something you can do anytime during the year, the days of Sukkot are especially dedicated to this great principle of Ha'olam Hazeh, Doime Leproizdor, Lifne Ha'olam Haba. That this world is only a hallway before the next world. We're only passing through a vestibule in this world, making our way to the palace of the next world. That's what the mitzvah of sukkah is telling us. Leave your home and go into the temporary dwelling, Gemara Sukkah. And so we move out of our affluent homes into a place where there's almost nothing. A few wooden walls, a flimsy roof, some paper ornaments hanging from the ceiling. And even though you might spend money to beautify it, it's still nothing like your real home. Your expensive chandelier and fancy dining room table are missing because you'll only be here for a short while. That's why it's kosher with just two walls and a tefach. Two walls and a flimsy roof. That's a very weak protection against the elements. The bamboo sticks won't keep you dry in a downpour. And if it's a cold wind blowing on sukkahs, you'll need an overcoat. And even if it's not cold and rainy, but the people passing by won't give you much privacy there. The neighbors hear everything you say, at least in your home. If you want to yell without embarrassing yourself, you can close the windows. But in the sukkah, you can't act like an Ezrach, like a permanent citizen 
When you're in a place that has only two walls and a tefach, you can't expect too much in the way of privacy and protection when you're residing in your home on Sukkot. And that's exactly what we want. We want to remind ourselves that we're not so established after all. And therefore, for seven days, we take up residence in a diras arai. We sit in a flimsy sukkah and we drill into our heads that we are not as established as we imagined ourselves to be. And now we come to the subject of what is the result of this knowledge? What's expected to be the result of living in the sukkah and knowing that this is a flimsy world? that we are merely visitors making a temporary stopover. The result is that we have to act like visitors. What does a visitor do? Let's say a businessman comes to China. He doesn't come there to mingle with the Chinese or to eat Chinese food. He's not going to get busy building a brick home and planting gardens. Maybe he will, but only if it will help him achieve his goal. Because he knows that he's there for one purpose. To take out as much money as he can from China. While he's visiting there. That's his sole interest. And that's the mushal that the Chayvah Salavavas gives. He tells the story of a man who was shipwrecked. And as he was swimming to the shore of an island. He saw a committee standing there to welcome him. And as soon as he came up onto the dry land, these islanders approached him and clothed him with royal robes and put a crown on his head. Then they all bowed down to him and escorted him with splendor to a palace in the middle of the island and sat him on a beautiful throne. Now this man didn't ask any questions. He was so amazed, so shocked. He didn't know what was taking place, but he bided his time and made a plan to find out what this was all about. After a few days, he began to look around at the people present in the palace to see if he could find someone with whom he could talk. He wanted someone he could confide in, somebody that would be willing to help him make sense of what was taking place there. He looked around and he saw one man who seemed to be more prudent than the others. Someone who seemed to be a very sensible man. So the new king made sure to show him signs of special regard. He gave him some gifts and some honors and he made sure to become friendly with the man. And then one day he took this man aside when nobody was listening and he said, Tell me, my friend, what is this all about? What's taking place here that they took a stranger like me and put me on a throne? So this man said, look, it's a secret, but because you showed friendship to me, I'm going to divulge it to you. Every year we choose a new king for our island. When the hurricane season comes, ships always wreck themselves on the rocks near the island. And what we do is we take the first survivor who comes ashore and we make him our king. That's our system of running our affairs because we don't want any king to be here for too long. We don't want our king to be too comfortable. And so at the end of the year, we take our erstwhile king off the throne. We don't give him any warning. We drag him from the throne, strip him of his royal garments and put him naked in a little rowboat, a little box, and we push him out to sea again. Now, what was the result of this new information? When the new king heard this, he didn't waste a second. He went into the export business. He got busy exporting as much gold and silver and diamonds from the island as he could. 
as much as he could, he sent, because he didn't want to leave anything there. He knew that sooner or later he'd be back home, and that whatever he shipped off the island during this year, that's what he would be left with forever. And so, with secret messengers, he got busy, sending out all he could, and he prepared for that day that he knew would finally come. And come it did. One day, without a word of warning, the islanders came storming into the palace, and they took him off the throne and escorted him to the beach. They picked him up by all fours and put him in a little wooden boat, and they gave it a push out into the sea. And he started paddling for his life, but he paddled happily. He knew where he had to go. He left with nothing, but he was already well prepared. And so we're learning now that what our job is in this world, we have to go into the export business. We're here to take out as much as we can. Now, what to export? There's a lot to talk about, but the first step is to know that you're in the export business and to live with that knowledge, that's already a very valuable piece of information. Once you really believe that, if you have a friend who can tell you the truth like that king had, or maybe you'll take the lesson from the sukkah like you're supposed to. So you're already on your way. Exactly what to export is only the details. There's so much to export. Mitzvahs surely are valuables that you can take along with you. Thinking about Hashem, that's definitely something that will be waiting for you in the next world. Toido masim toivim. That's clean cash that you should always be shipping out of this world or tzedakah that you give. If you give away charity, it's in your pocket and you'll take it along with you forever. I once knew a Mr. Herman Zichron Levraka from the Lower East Side. Now, Mr. Herman was one of the very few devoted from Jews in the olden days of America. Believe Venefesh. He was devoted to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And he told me once that at the time of the Great Depression, when he saw his business was quickly failing and all his money was going lost, so he right away took $1,000 in those days. $1,000 was a small fortune. And he gave it away to Tzedakah on the spot. He said, why should I lose that too? Why should I lose my chance at exporting more goods into the next world? He was a smart businessman, Mr. Herman. And he quickly exported another container out of this world. Now what to do for this world while you're still here? I'm not going to tell you right now what you should or shouldn't do. Should you beautify your home? Should you try to make money? The businessman in China has to sleep somewhere. He can't sleep on the street. He has to eat as well and keep himself healthy if he wants to succeed. And if he'll be there for a few years, so he'll have his family with him. And he'll have to provide for them as well. And that costs money. And therefore, certainly you must live normally. But you should keep in mind, always, this great principle that it's all part of your export business. Don't ever lose sight of the fact that you are only visiting here. This story, you remember, was told here already, but I'll repeat it. A visitor from America once came to see the Chavetz Chaim Zichron Levraka at his home in Raden. 
And when he walked in, he saw him sitting in a little room. There was no furniture there except a table of boards and a bench of boards. So he thought that maybe they were renovating the house inside. In the real house, the Chavetz Chaim, in the meantime, was exiled to the empty room with makeshift furniture while they were preparing the house for him. So he said, Rabbi, where is your furniture? So the Chavetz Chaim said to the visitor, And where is your furniture? So he said, I'm only a tourist. I'm just a visitor here. So the Chafetz Chaim said, So am I. That's how great men lived. They lived with the attitude that this world is only a temporary place. Of course, they lived in this world. They married and had families and lived in homes and made a parnasa and everything else that's needed in this world. But they understood what it was all about. Let's say you're in Grand Central Station waiting for the train and you have a chance to do some business there. You can buy from one person and sell it to somebody else at the station. Why not? No reason why not. But you have to know that soon you'll be hearing a whistle and the conductor will shout, All aboard! And you won't have a choice. You'll have to get on board. And so if you'll keep that in mind, that the train is coming sooner or later, so there's no reason why you can't have a nice home as well. As long as you'll be able to hop aboard with a big amount of paper money or banknotes, then you'll be able to cash in when you get to your destination. So you've accomplished. So if you buy a beautiful home and you have a big garden around it, okay, I'm not saying you can't invest into beautifying your place. Why not? If you like garden work, agriculture, if you have a green thumb, why not? If you can paint on your own, or you could hire people to beautify your home, why not? Maybe why yes. You'll have to think that through. But whatever you decide, there's a condition that you always must keep before your mind's eye. That we're only tenants. And even though you have a deed, and it's registered in City Hall, and you're painting your house, and fixing your garden, you must never forget that you're only a tenant here. And that's the great lesson of the sukkah. It's reminding you not to get distracted by the permanence of this world. The sukkah is shouting at you. Remember always that this world is only a lobby leading you into the palace of the next world. And therefore, prepare yourself in the lobby. In order that you should be able to enter the banquet hall. That's Oilam Haba. That's what we're aiming for. And therefore, we won't let ourselves be distracted by the permanent world that this is beckoning to us with two hands all the time. Imagine a man who is fortunate enough to have been invited to a feast, to a celebration that the king is making in his luxurious palace. It's an honor to have been invited because it's only the select few who are privileged to enter the private ballroom of the king and revel in all of the delights that only the king is capable of providing. And so, as this man walks through the hallway that leads to the ballroom, he is approached by a valet who offers to take his coat. And then a waiter carrying a tray of sweets is proffering to him the opportunity to taste from the delicacies. And as he steps closer to the ballroom, there is coffee and tea, all kinds of hot drinks. And this man begins to get lost in the pleasures of the proizdor. 
He's enjoying the delicious chocolates and he forgets that he's merely walking through a vestibule where he is supposed to be preparing himself. He should be preparing himself to see the king. He has to prepare a greeting, something to say to the king. And he should make sure his necktie is straight and that there are no stains on his suit. He should be concentrating on making sure that he is fit for his entrance into the ballroom, where he will stand before the king and have the opportunity to delight in the presence of royalty and enjoy all of the kingly pleasures. But this foolish man is getting distracted. Some small chocolates and a warm cup of tea are keeping him too busy for such preparations. And even when he passes by the mirror and is reminded of his purpose in the hallway to straighten himself up, he is distracted by the beauty of the mirror, the ornate designs and sparkling jewels. He's admiring the beauty of it all and getting lost in the beauty of the vestibule. What do we do with such a fellow? We remind him. So as this guest is munching on his chocolate and sipping his tea and admiring the plush wall-to-wall carpeting, he is startled by the waiter who taps him on the shoulder. Keep moving, sir. And when he reaches for another sweet, the mean waiter tells him that enough is enough. Use the mirror to straighten your necktie, fellow, to fix your shirt and move on. Keep moving. Don't get distracted by the sweets in this hallway. Enjoy them, but keep moving along towards the ballroom. And that waiter is the sukkah. For seven days, the sukkah is tapping us on the shoulder and reminding us, don't forget that this world is a dearest aray. It's just a temporary and flimsy world that won't be yours forever. In a few weeks, the sukkah will be all gone. And in 120 years, your world will be gone too. And the more we pay attention to the taps on the shoulder, the happier we will live in this world because every second becomes more and more precious. We're accomplishing in the Diras Arai of this world by preparing our station in the Diras Keva of Oilam Haba. Have a wonderful Yom Tov.